Hello, it's Paul Scott here, small cap specialist and writer of the Small Cap Valley Reports on Stockopedia.com. If you're not a subscriber, give it a whirl. There's a free trial available. And if you are a subscriber, thank you very much indeed for sticking with us through um, a pretty horrible bear market. We really do appreciate it. It's thanks to you that um, I can I can spend the time doing um, writing the reports and doing a quick weekly summary here. Let's start with Monday 31st of October. So I reviewed the profit warning from James Cropper. CRPR is the ticker. Now, um, the reasons I think they gave for this profit warning were pretty sensible. Uh, They've seen a 20% hike in raw material costs, plus, of course, energy has spiked. And um, there's a time lag in passing this on to customers. We've heard this from lots of different companies. So... I don't think the fundamental value of the company long term has really changed that much on uh, a soft figures for H1. They're saying they're only going to break even for H1. Um, the trouble is this is now the third consecutive year that James Cropper is only going to produce around 15 pence earnings per share. So the share price on Monday at £9.95 just looks way, way too high. It's dropped to about £8.50 now, but I still cannot understand why James Cropper is valued at anything like that figure. I think it's significantly overvalued. And it's also got some debt and a pension deficit, so I'm not interested in James Cropper, I'm afraid. Science Group, SAG. Now, we've been following Science Group for quite a few years, and it's established a very good track record, I think. Really uh, shrewd management there as well. Now, it's been circling a, a group called TP. The ticket is TPG. That's separately listed on its own, which has been a bit of a disaster. It's some sort of consultancy group. I don't really understand what TPG does, other than lose money for shareholders. Well, anyway... Uh, Science Group built up a big stake in it and tried to bid for it last year, I think at 6.5p. Well, they've now agreed a bid for it at a much, much lower price, um, which was, uh, I'm just scrolling down to see what it was. Um, It was 190% premium, which sounds amazing until uh, you realise that the offer price is 2.25 pence cash from Science for TB TB Group. I don't really understand why Science Group wants to buy it, but they're shrewd, so they must see some value there. Graham looked at Argo Blockchain, ARB. This has been a disaster. I was looking back at our previous reports on this on Stockopedia, and I covered it in August 2021, when it actually put out quite strong, highly profitable figures on the back of blockchain values, uh, which of course has been just a speculative mania uh, going through the roof at the time. But I described it at that point in time as being high risk, and I think I said it was a ticking time bomb. Uh, even though the shares were doing well back then. Well, it's more or less collapsed now. I think these shares are worth nothing because it, Graham covered it. It's got a ton of debt. And, of course, um, it's... Yeah, so that... I mean, they've more or less pretty much admitted that they, they're they likely to go bust. So uh, it, uh, this blockchain stuff is such a load of nonsense. I know the technology can be used for quite interesting niche purposes, but the the tokens themselves have no value, no intrinsic value whatsoever. So I've, I remain of the view that blockchain is just a gigantic speculative mania. Graham also looked at a couple of interesting property companies, Empiric Student Property, ESP, and Lock and Store, LOK. So see Monday's report if those interest you. Oh, I should also say on Monday, I uh, Paul Hill of Fox markets and uh, a very accomplished in uh, small caps investor and analyst in his own right um, and a lovely guy he and a friend of mine he uh, 
asks to interview me every now and again on video on Vox Markets, and people seem to like them. And we had a really good discussion, actually. We bounce ideas off each other, and we're both absolutely immersed in our small caps stuff. And quite a few interesting points came out of it from Paul and from me, I think. So take a look at that. Um, it's, I think it's, it's quite good. I'll put a link to it um, alongside this audio. Right, Tuesday, uh, as I've been predicting now for quite a while, made.com went bust, shares have been suspended. Um, I saw in the press uh, this weekend, apparently Next are looking to buy the brand and the customer lists for only about two or three million pounds. That's the only value in it. There is obviously value in the um, inventories as well, but I believe um, Fraser's is also said to be circling. I mean, he tries to buy everything, doesn't he, Mark Ashley? And it wouldn't surprise me if uh, Boohoo, maybe some of the other online boys might look at buying the brand, because if you can pick it up for peanuts and then source the product yourself with none of the overheads, costs or liabilities, it might make sense. But anyway, for shareholders, it's almost certainly a, a zero, so I won't waste any more time on that. Fulham Shaw, which operates the main, mainly the Franco Manca pizza chain, but also the Real Greek, another chain. Pretty good H1 trading update. Robust trading continues, and it's in line with expectations. Quite surprising, isn't it? You would think restaurants would be really struggling at the moment, and a lot are. So I think it's really interesting when uh, companies buck the trend in a downturn, which Fulham Shaw clearly is. They're expanding quite rapidly, opening a lot of new shops. The Ford P is quite reasonable now, 13.2. Um, I don't know how they'll they'll cope in a recession, though. This is the big question for everything at the moment, isn't it? You know, with what the Bank of England said, it sounds like they seem to think we're heading into a two-year recession and seem to be doing everything they can to make sure that happens with their, um, I think, completely misguided policies. But anyway, uh, Fulham Shaw is certainly on my watch list of potential buys um, after this. It, we're now finding which companies are doing okay in tough conditions, and Fulham Shaw is one of them that is, and that's because the product is good value for money, and it's differentiated. It's it's nice product, and it's good value for money. So I like Fulham Shaw. I had a look at Virgin Wines, V-I-N-O. Um, I had a good rummage through the June 2022 results, I think this looks quite a resilient business, actually. I was pleasantly surprised. It's dropped very heavily, something like 80% from the IPO price. It got a thumbs up from me, actually, in Tuesday's report. Obviously, there's the risk that customers might um, cancel their wine subscriptions, which is the bulk of the business. But I think it's a lot more resilient than it looks. And certainly, it's, it looks tons better than Naked Wines, which I think is much higher risk. Virgin Wines also has a sound balance sheet. So I quite like that one. We had an interesting one on Tuesday where a reader actually called Snazzy Time flagged up um, a, a big rise in something called Osirium Technologies, OSI. It's only two million market caps, so too small for me to cover. But we had an interesting discussion in the reader comments about that one. So I love it when readers do flag up your own share ideas and, and discuss them amongst yourselves. Curiosity got the better of me, and I did have a look at it later on in the day. And it's desperate for new for, for another fundraising, basically, so it's quite high risk. But once the fundraising's done on Osirium, it might be uh, an interesting little punt. Graham looked at Mincon, a £192 million market cap manufacturer of drilling equipment for the natural resources sector. You also look at Echo, trading in line with expectations, ECK, and Virtue Motors, a small acquisition, VTU. Uh, as a clean sweep on both Monday and Tuesday, actually, we looked at all the small cap companies reporting, so that was good.
Moving on to Wednesday 2nd of November, there were a couple of companies we didn't get round to looking at. NCC put out a, tra a trading statement and Spectral MD put out a trading update. Sorry we didn't look at those, but I don't think there were anything particularly uh, good or bad, so we, we omitted those. Uh, because I'm a retailing man in terms of my sector specialism, unfortunately, I wish I had a different sector specialism right now, but never mind. I looked at Next, NXT. Now, it's a large cap, obviously, but the reason I always look at these updates is because they're the gold standard of reporting. So much information in them. Anyway, it's Q3 update. Uh, it's a January year end, so Q3 is up to end of October, I think. Uh, reassured, they said, actually, um, they're performing fine despite all the macro headwinds. Uh, leaving their uh, guidance, very detailed guidance given, leaving that the same. Now it's on a PE of only nine. It's such an attractive share. And I do sometimes wonder, why am I bothering with all these small caps when I can buy a great quality business like Next on a PE of nine? But it is the benchmark. You know, if they can trade fine in an environment like this, then I'm not going to believe all the excuses from all their competitors who start putting out profit warnings. Now, Wednesday was dominated by uh, one of my audio interviews. These take a lot of time to prepare for and um, then to type up the thing. So it's a sort of five-hour job, basically, each CEO interview I do. But I think they're, re they're really worthwhile, so I'm going I'm to try and do more of them. I only select high-quality companies that are trading well. And I've wanted to talk to Cerulean, C-E-R, for a while. And uh, the CEO and founder, Louis Hall, agreed to talk to me. So I recorded that on Wednesday, published it on my podcast channel, and I've, for Stockopedia subscribers only, I typed up a transcript as well. Uh, really, really interesting uh, interview. What I try to do in my interviews is I don't want to go over the same ground that they do on webinars that they publish through uh, companies like um, Investimeet uh, Invest Company is very good, PI World, excellent, Tamsin and Tim there, and Mello and uh, ShareSock do, do webinars as well. So I, I don't want to duplicate anything they're doing. What I try to do is get to the crux of what's going on in the business and the things driving the business. So I focused with Cerulean on, on why has performance suddenly improved from 2020, and improved is putting it mildly, profits have absolutely gone through the roof. And it boils down, well you can listen to the, the interview, I think it's really interesting, and it really boils down to them spending 20 years building um, great software products and building up a track record and um, cloud-based solutions and their market of um, telecom companies is now switching over to the cloud and Cerulean are in a great position to um, service that demand. So they're really riding a, a crest of a wave there that I think it sounds like it's going to continue. And the CEO's got bold ambitions for the business going forward and he still owns 30% personally. And what a nice guy Louis is. Really grounded, down to earth, modest even. Uh, I find that really refreshing. So I think I think I really like Cerulean shares. I've liked it for a few years now, but unfortunately, it's always looked too expensive to me, so I didn't buy any. And over that period, it's eight bagged. <laughs> so again, it raises the question: Should we actually be looking at shares that are expensive and just paying up for them if they're really, really in a in a in a good sweet spot? So, interesting question there, but I've, I thought that was a fantastic interview, so do have a listen to that. I also looked at Morgan Sindel, MGNS, on Wednesday, which I haven't looked at before. This is a huge company, sprawling constructor and infrastructure group. 
Um, the, I, I generally don't invest in these big turnover, low margin businesses with major projects because so often you see something serious go wrong with a big project that then wipes out their profits and even um, even forces them into insolvency. We've had loads of infrastructure and uh, uh, construction type businesses go bust over the years. And uh, But I like Morgan Sindel. It's got a really nice balance sheet, a huge order book. Um, they've said that they're trading in, in line with expectations for 2022, despite the headwinds. Now, I think this sector is really all about management and execution. In particular, how do they set up the contracts? They've got to have contracts which have ability to claw back um, cost overruns and all and inflationary pressures. Morgan Sindel seem to be pretty competent at doing that. And I love the disclosure of average daily cash that they contain within their updates. I wish all companies would do this because, as we all know, balance sheet net cash, net debt figures are a snapshot on one day, and it's so easy to manipulate them. All you have to do is to delay a, a payment run to your creditors by a week, and you're suddenly showing a huge cash pile at the year end. But, you know, then you, you'll also see that the trade creditors are too high. Morgan Sindel, by disclosing their average daily cash balance, which is very healthy, um, they're giving us the true picture. Other companies need to follow suit. Please uh, take note if you're writing RNSs or advising companies. Average daily cash, key number. I'd like to see that for everyone. Overall, I came to the conclusion that Morgan Sindel shares uh, look worth um, taking a closer look at them. The PE and the dividend yield are both around six and a half. So I think when you get a PE and a divi, which is the same sort of figure, that's quite an interesting territory, particularly where you've got a strong balance sheet with net cash. Graham looked at Foxton's FOXT. I think this is quite interesting, actually, um, Foxton's. Uh, what was he doing? Oh, yeah, I covered that a few days ago, last week, I think. But Graham looked at the... It's, in, it's uh, announced a new £3 million buyback programme with excess capital. I think Foxens does look quite interesting. It doesn't look stunningly cheap, but if the new CEO is able to really uh, polish up performance, which he's aiming to do, I think that could be quite good. Aston Martin Lagonda, profit warning, Graham looked at that. Yeah, what can I say? And then Metro Bank is trading at a huge discount to net tangible asset value, MTRO. So Graham gave that the once over on Wednesday. Okay, Thursday then. Now, in addition to the small cap value report, I also posted two other um, written reports, which were my two interviews. So Louis Hall of uh, Cerulean, um, the typed transcript I wrote, I did on and published that on Thursday. So have a look at that if you're a Stockopedia subscriber. Now, I also interviewed at very short notice Andy Gossage of um, the MD of UP Global Sourcing, UPGS. Now, I interviewed him previously in February 2020, just as the pandemic was starting, and he was full of really, really interesting insights and sounded pretty confident at the time that UPGS would get through the pandemic okay. Now, that uh, his confidence turned out to be well placed. They did, and the shares, I think, four or five bagged from the pandemic low EPGS shares. It basically imports small consumer um, uh, items like Salter scales, uh, Russell Hobbs devices, kitchenware, cookware, all sorts of things like that that are branded. It sources them nearly all from China, sells them to retailers, sells online, and so on. It's a nice business, actually. Anyway, do have a look at that or listen to or both that my interview with him because it's absolutely full of insights about supply chains, 
um, bringing goods from China. There's some really, really important points in that uh, interview that's got wide, across, uh, wide read across, I think, for lots and lots of other sectors and companies, which was fascinating. And some of it was counterintuitive as well, I thought. So uh, that was probably the highlight of my week, those two interviews. Gosh, we were so busy on Thursday. Now, I did report on three mint caps, which triggered some of my readers' OCD a bit, I think. So I t- I'm joking. So I'm sorry about that. They said, what are you doing putting mid caps in a small caps report? Well, look, if it's interesting, we'll cover it. And, and the, the point is, at the moment, we want to see what's happening out in the economy. And mid caps often report earlier than small caps. And because they're big businesses, you're getting a better flavour for what customers are doing and so on and how the economy is going, I think. So I, we're going to keep doing that. If we've got to, We'll focus mainly on small caps, but if there's something interesting from a mid or a large cap, we'll just quickly comment on it. It doesn't take long. Anyway, Howden, Howden Joinery, um, HWDN, said they're trading well. Um, it's mainly flat pack kitchens, but also all sorts of other wood products. Quite a decent sized business. And it says, Howden says it expects profit before tax this year to be marginally ahead of broker consensus, which surprised me. But there you go. Sainsbury's SBRY also said that current trading is good and it left its current year profit guidance unchanged. And finally, BT put out interim results, the telecoms business. I only uh, had a really, really very quick skim of it and put up a few key points. Um, it's, it's, it's having to do a lot of fresh cost cutting. But the dividend yield is slightly higher than the, the 2028 bond yields, which I flagged up. And you're getting a dividend yield of about 6% with BT. And with a, um, the, the PE ratio is about the same as well. So just on valuation grounds, I think BT might be worth people having a closer look at. As I say, I don't have a view on it because I, I haven't properly researched it. And then the July 2022 results were out for UPGS, which and I was impressed with the numbers. They're in line with the last the August trading update. And the current outlook from them is pretty positive. And the interviewer, as I say, I did with Andy Gossage, the uh, or Gossage, sorry, the uh, managing director, and he's also a nine percent shareholder. And um, I think the chairman owns a, a bigger stake still. So you've got nice hands-on entrepreneurial management at the UPGS. Um, as I say, do have a look at that uh, interview, and they're they're trading well, and they think they're going to get through the recession fine. They say these are small consumer items, things like kettles, toasters mops all that sort of thing you know they're probably not going to be hit that hard in a, in a downturn if at all and they're only scratching the surface in terms of market share of massive markets um so i think i think i think that should do all right that share but it has bounced a lot from recent lows so maybe um it's one to go on the watch list rather than the buy list for me personally i had a quick look at kitwave k-i-t-w uh impressive trading update from that one as well for financial year October 22. Strong trading in H1 has continued into H2, so it's going to be in line. Uh, This is an interesting um, business, I think, Uh, a a distributor of um, cheap consumer items. Uh, Positive outlook. Yeah, so have a look at Kitwave. I think it's quite interesting. Forward PE is only 8.5 and a 5% dividend yield. Looks pretty good to me. Gatica, G-A-T-C. This is the struggling... Um, 
staffing company. It's basically only trading around break-even. I just can't see why it's not able to make money. Because it's, it, does, it has STEM specialism, which is science, technology, engineering and uh, mathematics, uh, which is a booming area. I mean, look at S3, which has this ticker STEM that I've talked very positively about before. They're absolutely raking it in at the moment, but Gattaca is only trading at break-even. So it's clearly just not a very good business. But there is an angle on Gattaca shares here. It's got an ungeared balance sheet with 17, no, nearly 18 million in net cash, which is three quarters of the market cap. So I've taken the view that, that you know, it's not under any funding pressure whatsoever. It's very well funded. So you could actually buy these shares and just tuck them away and forget about them without having to worry about insolvency or dilution risk. And it might then execute a turnaround. Who knows? So you're getting really the upside in for free. So pretty bad business if I'm honest but could be an interesting turnaround there. Graham looked at IG Design, the uh, Christmas wrapping paper thing and uh, TI Fluid Systems, I don't know anything about that one. So that was Thursday. A couple of minnows we didn't get around to looking at on Thursday but that don't look very interesting. Expediator put out a trading update and DSW Capital both about 25-30 million market cap so if they're smaller and they're only putting out fairly dull updates, we don't cover them. Okay, on Friday I looked at DFS Furniture, which put out um, an update saying that the last two months have actually improved. They call it an improving trend, but I don't think, think two months is long enough to call a trend. Um, they had previously said that April through to September had been soft with um, significantly weaker consumer demand for furniture. Hardly surprising, is it? They've guided expectations down quite a lot, but they're now saying they're going to hit the midpoint of the uh, profit guidance for the current year, but with an H2 waiting, which I don't like. Again, my main problem, well, a huge problem with DFS is it's so badly structured, the finances. It's got loads of bank debt, and it's using the bank debt to do share buybacks and dividend payments, which is crazy, going into a recession stripping its balance sheet, which was already threadbare and, and has massively negative net tangible asset value, and maxing out the overdraft. I think they're insane management there. I really do. What the hell are they thinking? So it's, for me, totally uninvestable, DFS, because of the, fin the high financial risk. And they had to do an emergency placing when COVID happened because the balance sheet was so weak. So it doesn't. It seems they haven't learned the lessons for that and are making the same mistakes again. They seem to think they'll be impervious to this recession. I, 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 I just don't understand what management are thinking there. Um, reckless is, is is probably a better description than in, insane, which um, was yeah. I retract that. They're not insane. I didn't mean it literally. Um, so yeah, I, uh, but for some reason the stock market just ignores the balance sheet risk at DFS. I have no idea why, but it does. So anyway, that's uninvestable for me. National World, what a strange situation this is. NWOR says it wants to bid for REACH, RCH. But the market cap of REACH is six times the market cap of National World. Now, as a reader pointed out, it is possible for small co to bid for large co but you have to convince the the shareholders of large co that the management of small co would do a better better job running large co and that they're happy to swap their shares in in large co for small co and and, and in practice this hardly ever works the only example i can think of in my career really in small caps anyway was recently when vin maria tried to buy uh oh god what the sarchi 
MNC Saatchi is using a cash shell and tried to put out a part cash but mainly paper bid and nobody was really interested so it, it flopped and I can see why. Why would you want to dilute an existing good business um, so that someone else can come in and, 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 and take it over on the cheap? So not that her offer was particularly on the cheap but if, 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 if most of the paper you get is not really asset backed then you know it, it, this it's a strange approach I don't know what National World have got up to but they've got very experienced management at National World so maybe they've worked out some way of funding this deal I don't know but I wouldn't get excited about it I also had a look at Port Merion PMP now one of our readers Illis Wilgig spotted that it's at RNS the previous day which looked as if it was just about a trading design partnership also contained an inline trading update I wish companies wouldn't do this and to my shame I didn't spot the trading update at the end of that announcement I just skim read the announcement thought oh this is not not very interesting so uh, I should have been more careful but anyway I've I've done a recap on Port Merion in Friday's report and I think it looks quite good uh, energy costs hedged into early 2024, so that should be all right. They're trading okay in coming into their bit, and they're in their busiest part of the year. Uh, I think I think Port Merion looks interesting long term. The big question mark with everything at the moment, isn't it? Everything consumer facing is what will happen to demand in 2023. If, as expected, we go into a recession, you know, we 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 really should be looking and expecting a bit of a profits collapse at a lot of companies in 2023, which then means that the share prices are likely to remain soft until you get to the point where the market starts to factor in recovering earnings. It seems to me, given all that's going on with the macro picture, it's just too early to start anticipating earnings recovery. Now, I also looked at 4imprint, F-O-U-R. What a fantastic business. It's a bit, la- bit too large for my coverage but I did flag it up in um, I think it was August because it was trading so well and it was obvious that the market uh, forecasts were far too low well that's turned out to be correct and it's now upgraded again pretty much to what I suggested back in August looked more likely which is about 250 US cents earnings for the current year uh, forward PE of 17.6 looks okay but again are we buying peak earnings right now on that <clears throat> that's the risk isn't it so I don't know, with a slowing economy, it's its main business for four imprinters in America, so you've got also dollar strength benefiting that share. But it's a lovely company, and what has been a major multi-bagger long-term. Looking at the macro news in the week, um, the big news is obviously the US hiked uh, base rates aggressively again. I think they're raising rates too fast. Powell spooked the markets by saying we have a we have a ways to go on interest rates, and it's that it's premature to talk about rates peaking. Uh, as you know, there are lots of traders who follow every nuance and word of these central bank utterances. We also had the Bank of England doing its thing this week. It's put up base rate bank base rate for up seventy five bips to three percent. Uh it is what it is, you know. Our rates are basically being dragged up by what the Fed's doing, aren't they? We always seem to have to mirror them. It does mean, of course, people with cash now, for the first time in 14 years, can actually start to hunt around to get some um, interest receivable on on their cash. So not everybody is a, is a loser with this. Dollar strength is continuing as well. Um, the pound and the euro are both 
quite soft against the dollar still, so that's an issue. Now, one of the important uh, indicators is the UK 10-year gilt, because we've had, obviously, this, this chaos over the mini-budget. Now, the 10-year gilt is now down to 3.4%. Uh, actually, it might be slightly higher. I wrote this down midweek, which is significantly lower than the 10-year the US Treasury at 4.16%. Germany's the lowest on 2.27%, because obviously they're very fiscally prudent, and also there's a kind of hidden value there in owning German debt in case the euro breaks up, which it would, it would revalue upwards, of course for the new Deutschmark, if that ever happens. Italy is at 4.5%, which is worse than the UK, and France is quite low at 2.8%, Spain at 3.4%. So it's quite interesting to compare these 10-year gilt rates. Um, the argument was that reckless, or perceived as reckless, UK policy under trust was pushing those gilt yields up to 4 5 5%, something like that. So it's good to see them coming down, back down to 3.4, 3 3.5. Of course, the price we're going to pay for that is we now go into a recession. Is, is recession looks pretty certain now. The Bank of England made some interesting, rather unhelpful, I think, comments, as usual, saying that we're now going into a two-year recession. If interest rates sh rise sharply, though, was there. But they then said they don't, think they're going to rise them raise interest rates as much as they thought so it's worth having a look at the bank of england website i'm going to do that later and read their stuff in a bit more detail i only jotted down the key points here quantitative tightening has just started in the uk the opposite of qe so instead of printing money and buying government debt the bank of england is now starting to sell government debt i think this is madness um, it seems to me a ridiculous thing to do at this point in time. But anyway, that's what they're doing. Because you've basically now got the Bank of England pursuing completely different economic policies to the government, or it was, and the government's now having to uh, basically have the Bank of England and the financial markets dictate to it what it has to do. So I think we're in a real mess. And my main macro concerns now are that the Bank of England and the government are inducing a recession um, to bring down inflation, supposedly, at a time when inflation is naturally going to fall anyway because it's due to supply chain issues which are, are, are gradually getting resolved. Without So I think this is all complete madness. And, you know, they're, they're, they're engineering a recession, which clearly is going to clobber company profits. And even though I'm bullish on individual companies still, I think the earnings outlook is getting worse by the day due to inept government and Bank of England policy, I'm afraid, and other governments elsewhere doing the same sort of thing. So as things stand now, you can't just ignore this macro picture unless you're holding for, you know, for long three, four, five years, in which case you can ignore it, of course. Uh, I don't know that... I'm, I'm not saying I can second-guess what's going on, but all of this stuff is making me feel that well, I've got some fresh money coming in um, in a month or two, and I just think, well, do I really want to actually start buying shares? The answer is yes. I've got a, a list as long as my arm of things that I think are really, really cheap. But I'm, I think I might only put some of the new cash to work and keep some of my powder dry because there are always opportunities. And, um, you know, I think earnings forecasts haven't gone down in, enough for many companies. So there could be better bargains available. And I don't see anything in policy terms which is going to actually stimulate and turn the economy round, which is what tends to trigger the start of bull markets. Um, thinking back to 20, late uh, 2008, for example, and also 
over COVID, it was those big changes in policy that um, to, to, to underpin financial institutions in 2008 and to, um, you know, to, to do huge stimulus in 2020 with COVID. Those were the things that triggered the start of a really strong bull market. Right now, I cannot see any trigger for a bull market at all. Quite the opposite. I think um, policy seems to be um, making things much, much worse. Um, so the only question now is whether whether I'm looking at things, are they cheap enough? There does come a point where a share just looks so cheap that I just think I'm going to throw caution to the wind and buy it. And there are things in my small cap universe where I think that is the case. So I'm going to deploy some of my cash when it comes through in a, in a couple of months' time, but not all of it. Also, I may have mentioned it before, I've renounced gearing forever. I've closed my IG and my SpreadX accounts. It's too its too much. It's too volatile. It's too stressful. Yes, I, I can make millions in bull markets, but I seem to lose it in bear markets. And I, I don't want to live my life that way. It's too volatile and having to check your phone all the time for what, you know, movements are happening in the markets. Traders enjoy that sort of thing. I don't, I've, I shouldn't have been doing it at all, really. But uh, it's quite addictive. And... Um, you know, making substantial amounts of money in the good times is definitely addictive and you go a bit crazy when you have all this money um, that you're not used to having. But I've decided the one thing I'm going to do from this bear market is completely change my strategy, just stick to owning shares outright. OK, I'm slightly lying. I'm keeping one small spread betting account just to have a bit of fun with. But... <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I know I'm incorrigible. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm in an OK overall position, much worse than it was last year. But um, it's just I'm going to slowly, gradually rebuild over the next however many years I've got and um, not not try and shoot for the moon or the stars and just, I think, taking it more steady. I think my, my strategy personally, my investment strategy, needs to align more with my analysis because my analysis is very much value shares, growth at reasonable price, you know, ignoring all the speculative rubbish and all that sort of thing. So I think my analysis is, is right. But the trouble is, it's like I'm a different person implementing it. This wildly overexcitable uh, personality of mine is just, is it's like, you know, a, a schizophrenic, really, a steady person doing the analysis and a reckless maniac actually implementing the decisions. So I've got to become more structured and disciplined. And the first step to achieving that on in my investing journey is to renounce gearing and make better, better planned, better executed decisions, um, owning shares outright rather than... Um, rather than gearing. Uh, you know, I see this as an apprenticeship. I've been doing this for my living for 20 years. It's a 20-year apprenticeship. The thing I love about shares is I'm learning every day. I always find something new. Um, and it, it's an absolutely fascinating, lifelong pursuit. And hopefully at some point, I'll actually work out how to... Well, I know how to make money. That bit's quite easy. The difficult bit is hanging on to it in the downturns. And I'm hoping... That's what I've really learned for good this time in this uh, bear market. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much about making mistakes. Life's all about doing stuff. Uh, some of it you get right, some of you get wrong. Everybody makes mistakes. The people on Twitter who you know say that they win on every tra a trade are lying.
Which brings me on to markets generally. It still feels like the uh, the bear market mentality of chasing up shares that are that are zooming up is the wrong way of doing it. It still feels to me like these are bear market rallies. And if anything, if something goes up 40-50%, which lots of small caps have done recently, I'd be inclined to bank the profits actually um, and have some powder dry for when they drop back. Because a lot of a lot of the, the big rebounds we're seeing at the moment just don't seem to be holding. I think other people are banking the profits, and if that's what everyone else is doing, then I think it makes a lot of sense to follow suit. I've mentioned before as well, we're getting lots of good, solid updates from many companies. Most of the updates we see at the moment are in line. Quite a few are even ahead of expectations, um, some profit warnings. But again, are we seeing peak earnings? This is the big problem, isn't it? I think you've got to be very careful going into a, a, an economic downturn, not to just say, oh, the PE is only seven. It's just announced tra- it's trading in line. You know, it could be the, the earnings could halve or disappear altogether next year. This is the problem. Because for most companies, profit is a sliver between two very large numbers, revenues and costs. And with costs going up and revenues coming down, you know, that, that sliver of profit can disappear very quickly. Um, so that's, I think, something to keep really at front of, of, our, of our minds. On the positive side, let's have some positive vibes. As uh, Andy uh, Gossage said in my UPGS interview, a lot of costs are now plummeting. Um, in particular, the interesting thing is the freight costs for um, uh, containers, 40-foot containers from the Far East. He was talking that through. They peaked at $18,000 in uh, well, sorry, pre-pandemic it was about $2,500 for a container from the Far East to the UK. Uh, it peaked at eighteen, nineteen thousand in 2021. He said it's right back down now. He said in the last six weeks they've absolutely plummeted these costs and it's now looking really exciting. He said he could see containers because he said the factories in China are now very quiet. <coughs> They're going to listen to the interview because it's fascinating. They're going to close for Chinese New Year three weeks early this year. He said the giant, the factory is desperate for business, so he said they're offering keener prices in many cases, and he said he reckons freight could drop down. He said it'll overshoot on the downside because the west is very well stocked, overstocked, so there's a lot of destocking going on, which is making um, the supply chains, um, you know, the factory orders are very very low. He's saying, which gives the the, the ports and the shipping side of things time to even out and get back to normal so and what he's saying is that the cost of freight is now plummeting to such an extent that that is offsetting fully offsetting the inflation caused by the the stronger dollar which is very different to what next said a few weeks ago but as andy pointed out next said that just before the freight rates really started to tumble so actually the picture on, on inflation for next year may not be as bad as people think based on what Andy told me in this interview. Uh, Next said they were going to put up their prices by 8% uh, next year in 2023. That may not be necessary um, later on in the year. UPGS told me they're not planning on raising their selling prices at all in 2023. He said because the the freight, they're, they're getting so much more margin from the reduced freight costs that it's fully offsetting all their other cost increases. Isn't that fascinating? Again, we've had absolutely brilliant reader comments this week in Stockopedia on the Small Cap Valley reports. There's been a lot of discussion about bonds after my um, cov- covering that issue with the uh, the wonderful Paul Hawkins, a bond 
uh, expert who who did an interview with me so that's on the podcast channel really worth listening to if you haven't um if you haven't done so already and again i type that up on stockopedia for our subscribers for a transcript uh, the main problem with these things is it's difficult. The, the clip sizes us on each trade are so big that it excludes it for, for private investors to a certain extent. But there are some ways around that. But we've had some really interesting debate on that. And some of the readers on Stocko are, are also bond experts. And they've been bouncing ideas around, suggesting which instruments people might like to look at and so on. So that's really good. Now, I haven't got a mystery share for this week. I think there were quite a lot of fairly interesting things but nothing that massively stood out for me so sorry about that yes i just want to do a quick plug for my lovely friend david Streder, who's um, i met 22 years ago at an agm he's a brilliant guy and he runs mellow he set up and, and runs mellow that does all these uh, investor events now the mondays uh, the monday webinars are continuing so on monday there's one um uh, upcoming they're really really good lots of interesting companies and you can dip in and out you don't have to watch the whole thing i tend to have it on my headphones and i'm wandering around the flat doing other things and then i zone in and out uh well anyway they, it, david's taking a big risk here but um he's launch, he's relaunching the physical mellow investor shows at the clayton hotel in chiswick where we've been before pre-pandemic now this is wednesday the 20th and thursday the 21st oh no i've got the wrong one hang on hang on Sorry, Google uh, misdirected me there. I found I found the current web page. So uh, Mellow London at the uh, in Chiswick is going to be Wednesday the sixteenth of November. So quite soon, that's what uh, uh, eleven days time, and also Thursday the seventeenth of November from nine a.m. to six p.m. on each day. And of course, most of us end up in the bar till about midnight. Um, <laughs> So um, I'm going to be there for both days. I'm really looking forward to meeting loads of uh, friends and Stockopedia subscribers. Some people uh, say they feel a bit awkward uh, saying hello. Please don't. Just come up and say hello. I love meeting all the readers and discussing, um, you know, having a good chat and getting... It's great to put names to faces and uh, to hear your suggestions. What are we doing well? What could we do better? very happy to discuss all those things over a, a nice crisp pint of two of Peroni. Obviously as well, there are going to be loads of companies there. Um, I've seen the list and some really interesting ones on there. It's difficult for David to persuade companies to actually attend physical events because they say, well, can't we just do a webinar? Yes, webinars are good, but I think once a year they should show up for an investor show and mellow i think is the best one and um you, there's nothing like actually meeting the management um getting a business card you know connecting with your private investors i know it's a lot of hanging around and standing on stands so i think again i urge people who attend have a do talk to the companies don't just wander around picking up leaflets chat to them even if you're not particularly interested in buying the share there's there are all sorts of insights that we can we can hear from and we can talk talk to them about things like getting broker notes out to private investors you know reinforce that to them that they need to do that and that you know they if there are things you don't like about the company's trading updates tell them i think this it's a great way for us to connect with 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 company management so i'm really looking forward to going to mellow 
on the uh, 16th and 17th of November. Hopefully, hopefully see you there. We can have a chat. Just come up and say hello. Even if I'm busy talking to other people, you know, um, I, I want to talk to all the readers and subscribers. Don't feel that you're sort of, I'm somehow aloof, because we've had that before from people, which is, is, is not right. Ed's going to be there, Ed Pagecroft, and, and Graham's uh, coming over from Ireland as well. So we're going to have a good contingent there. It should be a great laugh. Just looking at the list of panellists at Mellow, there's some really good ones. Andy Bruff, he's always great value. He's going to be there. Same with Gervais, Gervais Williams. These are, these are well-known fund, fund managers, of course. Uh, Paul Hill, my friend who interviewed me this week, he's going to be there. Leon, of course, Leon Boros. Loads of uh, good speakers. Lord Lee, um, Katie Potts is always very interesting. So, and loads of others. So, yeah, it should be great. Anyway, I'll stop waffling. Thank you very much for tuning in. We got through another week. This bear market will end at some point. I don't know when. Feels to me like um, things are getting worse before they get better, maybe. So I'm currently thinking this is more of a bear market rally. But look, I don't know. Nobody knows. And we'll make our money back in the next bull market. So um, there's a happy thought to end on. Thanks then and bye for now.